Well, um, I'm excited about being here. I don't know about you. <laughs> oh, you're excited too. How many of you yesterday spent some time watching TV at all yesterday? Yeah? Anybody? I did. How many of you watched any baseball yesterday? Any last service was two. There was a great game on for the Little League World Series. I don't know if anybody caught that one, but uh, the West was playing Tennessee, which was California. So California was playing Tennessee, and about midway through the afternoon, I was watching the game, and the game just got way out of hand. It was like 15-5 in favor of Tennessee. It was just not pretty at all. And it's so sad watching these Little Leaguers, man. Like, when they strike out, they're just in the dugout bawling and crying. They wanted to win so bad, and it's just, anyway, just really heartfelt. And um, So anyway, they're down 15-5. And uh, I go take a shower and I come out, get ready for church, and I see that they've came back all the way till it was like 15, 13. And in the last inning, they scored a bunch of runs and they got within a striking distance of tying the game or possibly even winning the game. And this batter came to bat and there was no runners on base. The score was 15 to 13, bottom of the sixth. And uh, the coach called timeout and walked over to the player who was about to bat and said some profound words that I thought were very, uh, very wise to the coach. He said to this young man, he said, in this moment, you can relax because you can't win the game and you can't lose the game in this moment. So just do your best and, and have a shot at it. Have a good time. And the player relaxed and sure enough, he had a home run. Right so it was pretty amazing. Now, the announcers said, as the coach was saying this, they said, yeah, he can't win the game or, you know, lose the game, but he can sure get them a whole lot closer. And um, this weekend or this uh, message here, I talked to Jared Nan. I was like, man, I have so much to say. I haven't spoken on the weekend for a while. Um, I just have tons of material. I have like an hour worth of material. Is that okay? And they said, no. <laughs> they said, Kevin, let me remind you that on the weekend, you can't win the game or lose the game. All you need to do is get a little bit closer to God. I said, okay, I could do that. I can do that. Last week, I went to junior high camp, and I parked my car under a tree for an entire week. If you can imagine the mess I had to clean up when I left camp, it was just filthy, completely, you know, sap all over it and, and uh, just dirt all over it. The windshield was just caked. And uh, it was really hot at camp. It was like 100 degrees during that week, and it's just a mess. And so like any good person would do, you'd go home and wash it, right? Yeah, I didn't do that. So I left uh, another week go by before I took my car to Caddy Car Wash, and that was, uh, I think, on Friday. Friday was kind of a warm day, and so I pulled into line at the Caddy Car Wash, and there was four, three cars ahead of me. And I saw the, the attendants who were working on the cars, and they just didn't look very happy. They just looked like they weren't having a very good day. They were kind of going about their business and kind of cleaning the front of the windows of the cars and just kind of not smiling and not excited very much. And, and so I'm sitting there watching this, and I didn't realize their demeanor until after my interaction with them. And then when I pulled up to... When it was my turn, I gave them my money. So I wanted a regular car wash. They said, okay. And as he walked back to go charge my card, he had a conversation with the other employee. He said, hey, man, heads up. The regional manager just pulled in. And instantly, my experience became so much better. <laughs> my car was really thoroughly cleaned. And uh, they came back with a smile on their face. And they were chipper. And they gave me my money back. And they also gave me a little thing to clean my dashboard, which I don't think anyone else got. So my experience was drastically better than the previous three cars experience. And uh, isn't it funny how when someone in authority shows up, how things change? You know, that's part of being a good leader, too. You walk into a room and instantly things kind of you know, change. But uh, God, I think, has a sense of humor, too, though. I think when Jesus was on earth, can you imagine the disciples? 
I mean, what if they were like just hanging out in a room one day and, and sitting there just chilling, maybe just like talking to each other, maybe even making fun of each other a little bit. They're like, man, Peter, your beard, man, it's getting gnarly. You should cut that thing. It's just so gross. And they're like, well, well be quiet, John. You smell like locusts. And, you know, and just, 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 you know, and they're talking and Jesus walks into the room and they're like, oh. Jesus, we're not talking. No, our bad, our bad. You know, they just kind of ship up, right? And they just kind of like, okay, I'm not talking anymore. But it's amazing when someone with authority walks into a room and changes everything, right? Mistakes are likely, less likely to be made when a manager, and there's stats all over the place that talk about when a manager's on site or overseeing a project, there's less likely chance of having a mistake. I think that's a good thing. I think in our world, we shouldn't put up with mistakes, amen? Mistakes should not happen, but they do. I think that uh, dealing with like 99% correct would be okay. I think I would say that's okay for most things to say 99% sure, 99% uh, that it's going to be completed and done really well. I think that's okay. But I want to give you some numbers here in in case you're interested about things that happen if you're 99% correct all the time. What might happen to our world if we're just 99% for sure not making a mistake? If that was the case, in Oregon, we have wonderful water. It's, it's really good. It's tasty. But in Oregon, we would have to sacrifice our wonderful, good-tasting water three days a year with having water that we can't drink. We just go, okay, we, for three days a year, we're just going to put that aside. It's 99% good. But for three days, we're going to sacrifice that and put that to the side. 1.7 pieces of first-class mail each day would be undelivered. How many of you would be upset about that one? Yeah? 35,000 newborn babies would have been dropped today. That's not good. Oh, sorry, Jimmy. He'll <laughs> dust you off. Here you go. He's good as new, I swear. You know? 200,000 people would get the wrong drug prescriptions filled. Can you imagine getting someone else's drug? What is this? Oh, that's not mine. You know, and you're asking a little, tweaking a little bit, you know? 10,000 perfectly normal limbs or organs would be removed each day. That's, that, would, that would stink. That would not be good. You know, losing a leg. Oh, I missed that leg. You know, that was, that was a good leg. How many of you agree that, you know, being 100% correct is a, is a good thing, right? I mean, we, we want to aim for that. That should be the goal of ours. Well, this morning we're going to look at the story of Israel and a mistake that they made. It was just one mistake, but it was a big mistake um, that, that cost them a lot in their future. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, our ushers are going to be prepared here in just a moment to be able to pass out Bibles. So if you don't have one, just put your hand up and they will deliver one to you right now. Um, we're going to look at the first nine verses there in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. Uh, and we're going to go verse by verse. So if you're a note taker, just go ahead and jot down verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. And we're going to fill those in for you. Um, I, I joked with someone on the way in. You're going to need maybe several different sheets of notes today because there's a lot of information to deliver to you. And I think it's important for us to kind of look at the scripture today and go, man, God, what are you doing in the lives of Israel? What are you doing in the life of our nation? What are you doing in the life of my family? What are you doing in my life, God? My wife and I uh, recently abandoned soap journaling for the summer. And decided to do a different devotional life this summer. And it was uh, partly encouraged by Jared Roth when he was speaking on one of the weekends where he said his grandmother would read the Bible in the entirety at least three to four times a year. And that was really convicted to me. I'm like, man, I, I don't know if I read it through once a year maybe. you know. And so I was like, I want to read the Bible from front to back in one summer. I don't know if you know how much scripture that is. That's 16 chapters a day. That's a lot of reading. And I, what I discovered as I was beginning to read 16 chapters a day, that the stories 
in the Bible are, are very, very similar. Man makes a mistake. God comes in, he rescues them and redeems his people. I mean, that's just a story over and over and over again. Men rebel. Men have problems. Uh, humanity's falling apart. God comes in, delivers a word. They correct it, and people are redeemed and they're saved. That's found in the Old Testament. That's found in the New Testament. That's found true to be in our life even today. And so we're going to look at this passage of Scripture for Israel, in which is a, a little snapshot of a mistake that Israel made um, along the way. So I'm going to read uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 through 9, and then we'll move forward from there. Verse 1, it says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. And we're going to skip to verse 3. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to us and to lead us, such as the other nations have around us. But when they said this to him, they said, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done this from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will reign over them will do and claim as his rights. A little background here, since we're talking about kings, I think it's very fitting for us to take a note here about where did Israel come up with the idea to have a king? One of those spots is right here in the scripture. They looked over to the neighboring country and go, oh, look at them. They have a king who lead their, leads their army. Let's, let's do that. So that's one observation. Their, one of their ideas was they saw with their eyes um, what other countries were doing. They were like, that's a good idea. You know, there's some corrupt leadership in place. Let's replace it with the king because that's what other nations are doing. So automatically they just observed what's going on. These people are Jewish, so they're also going to consult their main five books, which is called the Pentateuch. They were going to go back and look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they're going to look back and go, well, what did the law say? Well, what the law said is that they might be able to, to have a king. And uh, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, according to the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant which God uh, displayed and told uh, Abraham what he was going to do through him. In his life, it says this, that he was going to be, uh, a kingship was going to be a part of what God's plan is for Israel. That's Genesis 17, verse 6. It was part of the plan at that moment with the Abrahamic covenant that it foretold. It says the kingship was going to be a part of Israel's plan. And here's the key word, eventually. So in the scripture here, we're looking at this in the back in, in Genesis 17, 6. It says at some point, there'll be a need for a king. Second one is Moses. Moses foretold the day when Israel was no longer going to be happy with God's direct rule. In other words, people are going to be tired of a theocracy. They're going to be tired of having God's direct rule. And they're going to want to have a king. And that story is found in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 15. They're going to start complaining about God's direct rule. And they're going to want a human, a man to come in to lead them. So didn't God say, 
It was okay to have a king? Yes. I mean, it's right there in scripture, right? We just read it. God says that Israel was to have a king. Yes. Does it mean that it was right to have a king in Israel? Was it right for the people to demand a king? Absolutely not. And here's why. Just because something is foretold, just because something is prophesied in the Old Testament, does not make it good or even right. Example of this would be Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. Israel rejected Christ as their king. That was foretold in the Old Testament. That was neither good nor right. But it was prophesied in the Old Testament that 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 would happen. And that's just one example. There's other examples as well we can find in the Bible about that as well. It only means, here's what it only means. It only means that God knew what was going on. All this stuff means is that God is sovereign and completely in control of the situation. That nothing is surprising him at all. There's nothing catching him off guard. He knew that one day people were going to need a king. People were going to want a king. And so he allowed them to have a king eventually. Do you notice the language here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8? He said, just, just let them have their king. It's not what Jesus, it's not what God wanted. It's what they allowed them to have. And that's key for us to understand. Did they have right to have a king? Yes. Was it God's ultimate plan for them to have the king? I don't think so. It was not what God wanted. God wanted to be their king and to rule them directly. That was his desire. And I believe that's our desire today is for God wanting to be our king as well. So let's dive into this. Verse 1. Currently, newly appointed leadership did not follow the ways of the previous leadership. So Samuel is the last judge of Israel. The last living judge of Israel. God's direct rule came through two people. God's direct rule came through prophets and through judges. So God would speak through prophets. Prophets would deliver a word of the Lord to a nation. They would repent, turn their ways, follow God more closely. People would change. God would speak to judges, judging the people rightly about what their conduct and life was going to be based upon the law of the Old Testament. Now, all of a sudden, that's changing. It's going and moving to a new direction where it's going to be more of a, a monarchy, where there's going to be a family ruling over Israel. So here in the beginning, Samuel appoints his sons to be judges, to be the heirs to the judge. But the people of Israel weren't happy with that because of why? Because they were corrupt. They were, had, had wrong dealings with, with people. They were taking bribes. So the current leadership there was not following the previous leadership. Samuel grew old and his sons were appointed as judges over Israel and they did not follow his father's ways. So they, were, they weren't the right people. Israel, or I'm sorry, uh, Samuel was the last judge for us to remember that. Uh, but they rejected him in favor of having a king. Rejecting the judge in favor of having a king. Up to this point, Israel was led by God's direct rule, again, through prophets and judges. The idea here is people got tired of, of a current system. They wanted something new. As soon as some uncertainty began to happen in the nation, they instantly wanted something different and new. A new way of living, a new, new hope, a new whatever. They, just, they wanted something new just because there was a moment of uncertainty. Samuel does point out later on in Kings, this is kind of funny. In chapter 21 later on, Samuel points out this. And he's up in age at this point. There's a king in place. 
Um, he was already old at this moment uh, when this happens. And so chapter 21, there's, there's a king in place. And he says this, and I almost want to put a voice in my mind when he says this. He says to them, hey, you know what, kings? Just want to point it out. Kings are not nearly as good as prophets or judges. I just want to point that out. And the voice that I'm hearing is my grandfather's, my grandfather's voice. Who says to me every time I go to Fresno, did you know Fords are not good as Chevys? Did you know that? I just want to point that out, Kevin. I go home, I drive a Ford, and I pull into my driveway. And the first thing I hear from my, my grandfather passed away. But when he was alive, he would say to me, you know, you know, Chevys are way better vehicles than, than those Fords, you know. They don't break down nearly as often. And he just, he just gives me an earful every time I go home. And I can't help but think that's what Samuel's saying to these people. You know, kings aren't nearly as good as prophets were. You know, those were the way to go back then, you know. And I kind of have that whole voice in my, my mind when I hear that. And uh, so verse 3, corrupt leadership was in place, and that's what we can agree upon. Regardless of what Samuel's heart was, if it was right to have a king or not, what we can agree upon is that the current leadership was corrupt that was in place, that was being installed. And by no means am I making a correlation or even I'm making a hint to talking about the current administration or the previous administration in the White House. And I would not touch that with a 10-foot pole or if I I worked for Fox News. I would not even touch that at all. But there's things that I'm going to be mentioning this morning that I think you're going to naturally think about our current state in our world and our our economy and with with the election coming up. And I think that's fine for you to to think about. I think it's fine for you to take what I'm telling you from the Bible and applying it to our nation, to our life. I think that's what we should be doing, learning from lessons from the past. And so current leadership was in place. But again, I'm not making any conclusions about what's happening in this administration or previous administrations. Okay? We're clear. (laughs) Corrupt leadership... Corrupt leadership leads to doubts and searching for answers in verse 4. Whenever there's a corrupt leadership in place, it leads for the people to, to believe that there needs to be change. And they begin to doubt what's going on and they need change. It creates, in other words, uncertainty. I don't know if you've ever felt a moment in your life where something was uncertain. When things are uncertain, what we naturally do in life is we move to a problem-solving state of mind. We move to a place where it's a take-charge process. When there's uncertainty, people naturally walk into a take-charge process. Do you remember in the book of Acts, where the, the, the believers were gathered in the upper room, in Acts chapter 2, and they were waiting there, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they were called to wait and worship and wait and pray. And there was uncertainty about the church. Jesus is dead. What is the church going to be? What is it going to be about? I don't know. But no one went out and said, hey, follow me. This is the way I'm going to go. You know, the church is gone. Just follow me. I want to make up some rules about Christianity. No, what Peter did is Peter stood up amongst the people and preached and said, we are to follow Christ. We are to build the church. It's built upon the rock. And, and he stood up and created in that moment of uncertainty. He says, we're going to trust God in this moment. We're not going to make our own way. We're going to trust God in this moment. And basically, that's the same decision we have to make today. When we're faced with uncertainty in life, we have the same two choices that Israel has to make. The same two choices that the book of Acts talks about where the disciples gather together. The two choices are, in an uncertain moment, we go, what do we do? Do we sit and trust God and follow his way during the uncertain time? Or do we go create our own way and in that process possibly discover other uncertainties about our own life and life ahead of us? Two choices. Two choices that we have to make today as well when we face uncertain times. Do we sit and remain and trust God as king? Or do we make our own way 
like Israel's doing. Not happy with what was happening, creating their own way. And what does God do in that moment? Does God come down that moment going, you guys are wrong, this is stupid, don't do this, this is terrible, bad decision, it's going to be awful. No, Jesus goes, if this is your way, go for it. Walk that way. He allows them to walk that way. He allows Israel, his chosen people, to walk that path. If we aren't in the moment with God, if we're not in this moment here trusting God, we're automatically in this moment. And when we're in this moment, we have two choices to make. If we're making our own path, we have two directions to go. We can either look back at pain, regret, sorrow, you know, past or past, whatever we experience, or we can look forward and go, what's up ahead? And that's uncertain as well. We don't know what's ahead of us. We just go this way and we're, well, I guess we'll take this path here. It's built upon nothing. But when we're in Christ, we know who we're aiming. Christ Jesus is our North Star. It's our compass. It's who we point to. It's why a theocracy works within Christianity. It's why we have one leader. It's why we say no to ourselves and say yes to Jesus in our life. It's why we say no to our flesh and say our flesh will lead us our own path over and over and over again. But when we say yes to Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, you're our king and you will be the one I serve. Amen? Amen. Example of this would be in my life with my son Jackson. I, ta- I spoke about it before. When we heard the report of our son possibly having a brain tumor, instantly that created uncertainty with Emily and I and our family, right? Can you imagine that? Doctors told us the reports and we believed them. We were uncertain times and we instantly jumped in this path over here and began to go, wow, chemo, sickness, disease, cost, possible death. That's what we saw until we were reminded to move over here in God's camp and to remember that we have a king who loves us, that, that we need to follow and, and believe his reports over these reports and follow Christ Jesus. Amen? Uncertain times. Verse 5. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted a man instead of God leading them into battle. Even though it was God who was leading them out of Egypt, out of slavery, they had a God who would have never let them down. Yet they experienced some uncertainty in a moment and instantly they go, I want a, I want a man leading our army. I want someone here to lead us into battle. They wanted to be like and look like other nations around them. But we know this in the Old Testament. We know that Israel was never to look like any other nation. They were never supposed to look like anybody else. They were a holy priesthood. They were a nation set apart. They were destined, they were God's chosen people. They were never destined to look like any other nation. There's a writer named Tony Campolo who says this. He says, when Israel chooses to look like another nation, or when Christianity looks like to mimic the world, it's like mixing ice cream with manure. You take ice cream and put it in manure, manure manure doesn't change very much, does it? You take a dab of manure and you put an ice cream and it completely ruins it. And this is what Tony was pointing to is that the church must follow Christ and must remain separate from the world. Love the world. Be of the world. But don't, don't, don't be in the world where it's consuming you and trying to affect the world because it's going to affect you. Sometimes I believe that the church is being affected more by the world than the world being affected by the church. It's seen in our speech and our actions at times in life. And I'm, I'm guilty of it as well as a pastor. 
of wanting to compete with what the world has to offer for our youth. And so I've got to offer this as well because the world offers this. And it's a world that's very difficult as a youth pastor where you've got students living in both worlds and you're trying to divide them and pull them back out of the world into the church. And God, and you know this, God never designed this church to be a place where we just a hub, we gather together and never go out. No, God designed the church to be a launching pad into the world. To live your life out there, out loud, and, and be the light of the world, and to reflect Jesus Christ out there. They wanted to be like the nations around them. Israel was looking for Jesus to be king. This is the interesting point. So here we go with Israel wanting a king, right? Okay. Fast forward a couple thousand years. God sends his son to earth. The rightful king. And what does Israel do? They reject him. God gives them their king in flesh, the rightful king, and he's rejected. Jesus gives us hope and life today, and what do we do? We reject him. Jesus desires to be our king. God desires for him to be the king in our life as well. And at times in our life, we... We place him there, and life looks good. Okay, Jesus, you're my king. But then all of a sudden we get distracted. We're like, oh, I'm kind of lonely, or I'm kind of sad, or I'm kind of hurting. And oh, this here is real, and let's put that there. Because now I can touch this and see this and feel this. And we put Jesus to the side for a moment. And, and all God wants to do is say, here's the right way. The better way is Jesus is our king. Amen? Amen. Verse 6, Samuel made it a matter of prayer. He laid out his case before God and he shared the heartache with God. And this is the point for us to be able to apply to our life right now. When we're faced with uncertainty, when we're faced with things that are displeasing and, and wrong, we must take it to God in prayer as our first mode of action. This is a very practical step for us to take it to prayer. Also in verse 6, it says that he was displeased. Samuel was displeased. This word displeased means that he was seeing something evil and that he was not okay with that. When he sees that word displeased, he says I, to see the, the evil in something and wanting it to change. Samuel's heart was saying, I see something evil. I see something that's not right and I want it to change. That was Samuel's heart when he says I was displeased with what I've heard. Because he saw that this is not the best option. When I was in Haiti this last year with a group of our youth and some of our adults, we had a young lady who was in a room and we thought she was demon-possessed. And so we were praying for her and there was about 15 of us in the room at that time praying for her. And we were making progress and ministry was happening. It was really good. A gentleman walked into the room, created division, caused a bunch of problems in that room. Eventually, there was a wise person in the room that said, we should pray for him. And my response was, no, we should throw him out. (laughs) I think my way would have been more fun, but we prayed. We prayed, we prayed, we prayed. All day, this guy was on our campus. We were running a youth camp there in Haiti, and he was creating division in camp, getting people to side with him and, and divide from the church. Eventually, at the end of the day, he decided to leave, and he rode off on his motorcycle. But I believe it's because our youth were praying. I believe our youth were, were uh, there were some of them were fasting. Tammy did a great job of leading us at that time, telling us what we should do. Not what I would want to do, <laughs> but what we should do is pray. And it was amazing. I had dinner with a couple, uh, a couple nights ago who were missionaries uh, at several different places around the world. And, and they said this. They said it's profound. They said, when, 
we would go out on crusades. We would see about one out of every 10 people come to Christ and be converted to Christianity. But when people would stay back and pray at the base camp for us as we're out, we saw three out of 10 come to Christ. So triple. Prayer works, and it's something that we got to remember that often we need to pray first before we react. We need to pray first before we complain about our president. We need to pray first before we put something on Facebook or on, on Twitter or something, you know? We need to think before we, we act. And, and I think I'm an, I'm an activist, and I like to do things. I like to move. I like to be a part of stuff. So for me, prayer usually is, is a second thought. It doesn't come natural to me to go stop and pray. But Samuel was a godly man. He said, we're gonna, I'm going to pray. I'm going to take this to God in prayer. When he was displeased, he, he prayed. And so in life, when you're displeased, and it's okay to be displeased. It's okay to see things that are wrong that you want to see right, and you want to vote, and you want to pick it, and you want to tell people about it. That, that's okay to be displeased. But do what Samuel does and go to prayer first and take it to God. Amen? Amen. Verse 7, ultimately, they rejected God's leadership, ultimately. This is what it's about. They said, Samuel, it's not about you. God says, it's about me. And uh, ultimately, they, they rejected God's leadership. The Christian life is not a democracy. Um, in this case, uh, what they were trying to make it was a monarchy. The Christian life is a theocracy. It's a uh, one way that we view God above us and we follow him. And they were trying to make it more about a monarchy. The people turned against God's sovereign rule. For an earthly king. So here's how we have it set up so far. The first seven chapters of Samuel is all about God's rule and reign. Chapter 8, it's about the rejection of God and turning it over to earthly, uh, an earthly king, a monarchy. That happens from chapter 9 through 31 is man's way. And if you want to finish the story, you can hear about man's way and how that ends up. It's a lot of ups and downs. Verse 8, God is looking for people who will follow his leadership. The people of Israel weren't willing to wait on God's timing. Again, they were not willing to wait for God's timing. David was a pretty good king. And that was a king that, that I believe was destined to be there. Through David, it, it, there's a clear line to Jesus. David was an instrumental person who was supposed to be king. That's 40 years later. So they get this king named Saul, who was a very corrupt man. Doing the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. Let me repeat that. Doing the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. Examples of this. I'm going to list them off. I'm going to try to hit all of you in here, including myself. A single person wants to be married a married person wants kids. A newlywed wants a new car or a new house. An unemployed person wants a new job. A person who has a job wants a new one as well. <laughs> Teens want respect and freedom. College students want support and covering. Grandparents want to retire and or have grandkids. Liberals want people to be open-minded and tolerant of people. Conservatives want individual responsibility. These are all good things done in the right way and the right timing are very appropriate. In life, it's a lot about timing. And Israel had to recognize that. That it was okay to have a king at some point, eventually. But the right timing mattered. 
Verse 9, they experienced a harsh monarchy that often led them further away from God. And that's a result that we can see almost every time when we do it our way, resulting in being further away from God. God gave them what they wanted instead of what he wanted to give them. So in our life, what does God have in store for you? What is God's idea for you? What is God's idea for our nation? What does God have in store for your family? What does God have in store for the world? Because I believe God has something in mind for each one of those areas. And we can either settle with God's best or our best. And I think we know which one's the best. It's God's best. When the future is uncertain, we need to remember God. When things don't make sense, we need to remember who is our king. Moreover, it's important that we know that God's desire is to be our king. We sang a song about it earlier where we said, God is jealous for me. God wants you. God wants this church. God wants this nation. God wants the world. And he desires to be all of our king. And it's not more than his just suggestion, like, oh, it'd be, it'd be good for me to be your king. You know, I would do a decent job. No, God, like, desires it. It's in his nature to, to be our leader, to be our king. We need to remember this great scripture in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, when it says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That when looking back or looking forward kind of scares us and we're uncertain, we need to remember that that same God that desired Israel desires us today. 